Welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Lori Forner, a physiotherapist working in pelvic health, as well as a new student researcher on the fun, long road to a PhD, where we will be looking at pelvic floor problems and exercise. I'm here to bring you information from leading professionals on all aspects surrounding pelvic health for any gender and any age, from the vast range of pelvic floor problems to exercise and sport. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Pelvic Health Podcast. If this is your first time listening in, thanks for joining us. Today's episode's really exciting. I have Professor Hans-Peter Dietz from the University of Sydney School of Medicine. Now, I'm going to read you his bio if you're unfamiliar about who he is, straight from the sydney.edu.au page. So, uh, Professor Dietz is an obstetrician and gynecologist and RANSCOG certified subspecialist in urogynecology. He's an internationally renowned expert in pelvic floor imaging. He fo- his research focuses on the prevention and treatment of maternal pelvic floor trauma related to childbirth. For over 25 years, he has studied damage to pelvic organ support structures associated with childbirth and is recognized for his pioneering research in this field. His work is of fundamental importance as a substantial proportion of women delivering their first child vaginally suffer extensive damage to pelvic floor structures, which can result in pelvic organ prolapse and or urinary or fecal incontinence, often many years after childbirth, which can be extremely distressing. Aside from the costs associated with surgical treatment, prolapse due to pelvic floor trauma is particularly difficult to repair and may recur after surgery. His research contributions include the rediscovery on ultrasound of trauma to a muscle that plays a major role in childbirth, the levator ani muscle, occurring as a consequence of vaginal delivery. And that's really what we're going to be focusing on today. So in because Professor Dietz is very generous with his time, this podcast is going to be split up into two parts um, because we talked for a couple hours. So the part today is going to be talking about what is levator ani muscle damage, how he came about discovering it, and the second part that comes out, we sort of finish off on a discussion surrounding forceps in childbirth. So I'll leave you on a cliffhanger and we'll come back to that in the second part of this episode. Now, for those who are listening via the Podbean app, there is a way that you can donate to the podcast and subscribe, which is called Become a Patron. There's a little kind of red button. Thank you to all of those who have um, who have become a patron. And as a thank you, I have been putting out little patron-only episodes episodes that you can only access. Now you are able to um, donate one or two dollars US a month. You can even do it as a once off and then cancel it. And the next patron only episode will be Professor Dietz discussing where they are with respect to surgical management of levator anti-avulsion. Thank you to everybody who listens. If you are listening via Apple Podcasts, if you can subscribe and rate the show, that would be great. Um, But I just hope that you guys are enjoying what you're listening to. So without taking any more of your time, here is our discussion. Thank you very much, Professor Dates, for coming on to the podcast today and giving us your time. I wanted to talk about levator avulsion. Um, it's a concept that I have heard about and read about for quite some time, but I, in the physiotherapy world, as well as in the medical professional world, there still seems to be quite, um, I still come across people who are not aware of what it is or don't believe that it really exists. So can you explain to us what, what is levator avulsion? and why do we care about it? 
Laurie, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. It's um, one of the more important parts of my job because now it's really, what I do now is really mainly about um, translating, uh, translating research findings so that people are able to use that kind of information in their own practice. And it's sometimes I have to pinch myself and remind myself that we've um, a lot of things have changed uh, in the last 15 years or so. And it, you know you can probably you can probably say that for yourself that sometimes it's hard to remember what you thought about things five or ten years ago when everything's so different now you know there's all these layers of sediment in your brain that you have to dig through to try and remember what things were like 10 or 15 or 20 years ago and and for for, for me i i very much try to keep tabs on that okay because i constantly deal with people who are at an earlier stage of development if you want so so i have to understand how somebody thinks who's not actually been confronted with this or that or the other concept. So, and and that's the one thing that you know academic medicine is really good for because we constantly teach people who are kind of completely naive to a certain problem, whether that's a student or a junior doctor, or a patient for that matter. Okay, so that's one of the more enjoyable parts of the job. So, so I still have a rough idea of what it felt like for me. So. Before November 02, I didn't actually understand where the levator was. I didn't understand what its, ro what its role was. Um, uh, the, the, the standard concepts that gynecologists have subscribed to for, uh, for um, the last 50 years is that um, the pelvic organs are kind of suspended. They're suspended by ligaments and by fascia. And if something comes down, it's because those ligaments have been overstretched or the fascia has been torn or whatever. And to a degree, that's still true. I mean, there are some parts of the pelvic floor where that very much applies. Like, for example, for rectocele. Rectocele is a defect, a deficiency in a sheet of connective tissue, which is called the rectovaginal septum. So if that's not working well, you get a bulge, you get a pocket, you get a, a hernia, okay? And that gives symptoms that people, that the patients often understand better than the doctors that they're seeing, actually. Yeah. Um, when it comes to the levator, I completely disregarded it. And it's really not, it has not been in our books. It's not, uh, <laughs> it is as if it wasn't there. And I remember as a student, I still remember some coloring in books that we used in uh, in, in, in our anatomy course, in the second year anatomy course. And the we did all kinds of colorings in, and coloring in, and there, there was, the pelvic floor muscle and there were all those structures that um, have weird names that are now partly out of well you know nomenclature is a real it's an absolute beast yeah. in that area so so I still remember I was coloring in those things and was supposed to be three-dimensional and I didn't understand a thing as to how uh, the spatial relationships actually related to a real person and of course we you know we did dissections at, at my uni but but we never touched the pelvic floor and this was rarely touched in in, in anatomy in, in anatomy courses and so i didn't know where it was i didn't know how it was arranged i could not examine for it 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 might just as well not have existed and that's still the case I, i'm not aware of a single midwifery textbook that says anything about the liver and i and um, my, my wife's actually, uh, you know, she's a midwife. She's, yeah. she's currently doing a, an, a review article for the German uh, midwifery magazine. And she has to start absolutely totally from scratch because 
um, there's nothing in the books. Okay. So if there's nothing in the books and if you don't have a concept of it in your head, then uh, anything that comes from the outside talking about that will um, initially at least be classified as bullshit. Okay. And we all have uh, those bullshit detectors in our brains. And I have a really, I have a very, very big bullshit detector. <laughs> but so, so I understand why people are skeptical. They're supposed to be skeptical for God's sake. Yeah. Okay, it's fine. It's fine. So if anybody tells me I don't believe this or that or the other thing, I wake up because that's uh, honest and it's the right thing to be skeptical. So now let's let's tackle this. So when when for example Vic Kular from the UK has been the he's a, a, a very prominent senior urogynecologist in in London, a trainee of Linda Cardozo's, and he's been, he's been the only person ever who's actually put in writing. Um, this suspicion that it's all bullshit, that what we what we see, what we describe as avulsion is actually an artifact. The only person who's ever dared put that in print. And um, fine, it's okay. You, you know, you, it's all right if somebody thinks that. But then I'd ask them, please, just, you know, just um, check it out. Okay. So all you need to do is, for God's sake, you need one functioning index finger. Or at a pinch, you could probably, after losing your index finger, you could probably do with some other <laughs> thing. Just need to stick that, I'm sorry to be so blunt, but just stick the finger in, examine. And even people themselves, um, even patients can do that, of course. They can examine themselves. And in some instances, it's not difficult to diagnose an avulsion at all. Anyone can do it. It's not rocket science. And the, the easier ones, the easiest ones, are those that are on one side. Hmm. Um, the, for, for those who are unfamiliar with the um, you know, basic anatomy there, the, the pressure inside the vagina is largely produced by the levator ani muscle, which is a V-shaped muscle plate through which the vagina, the back passage, and the urethra have to pass. So it's, it's kind of like a sphincter muscle in a way. And, and when you squeeze, when you pull up, when you tighten, when you stop wind from escaping or urine from escaping, what you do is you contract all the sphincters you've got down there. You contract the anal sphincter, you contract the urethral rhabdo sphincter, which is the muscle around the urethra, but you also contract the pelvic floor muscle. This is why pelvic floor muscle exercises work. So, so when, you, when you do that, when you contract the pelvic floor muscle, you narrow, you tighten the vagina. And that's something that's easily checked. I mean, of course, you, I imagine you can feel it. I can't tell because I'm a male. But uh, you, you're likely to feel that quite clearly. And, and of course, you can feel it when you examine yourself or when you examine the patient. So do that. And um, once you've done, what do you think, Laurie? Um, once you've examined 10 or 20 women, younger women who've got a problem uh, with pelvic floor symptoms of pelvic floor dysfunction of any kind, amongst 10 or, or amongst 20, you will most certainly pick up one person in whom there is an obvious side difference um, to the degree that you can feel the muscle on one side where it inserts on the pubic bone and that's easy to identify too to the front yeah. right next to the urethra to the water pipe um, on one side you'll feel the muscle you'll feel the contraction on the other side you won't feel anything at all because it's not there because it's been it's been torn off and disconnected so the muscle is still there it's just not connected to its insertion, which means you can't feel the contraction. And it's, it's also quite hard to feel the muscle bulk. That's, you know, because it's not connected. So it's not under tension. You'd need imaging to actually find that muscle bulk. On the other side, where it's, where it's attached, it's easy. It's really easy to feel the muscle bulk. And even for physios, for which this is 
second nature, um, really should be second nature, uh, pelvic floor physios. Yeah. Um, physios in general, because this is like a sports injury. It's like a rotator cuff tear or God forbid an Achilles tendon rupture, something as drastic as that. It's, uh, it's very macroscopic. It's not microscopic at all. Um, and despite that, Laurie, you know that some physios have been um, really slow in uh, in realizing what's happened there. And there, there's it's not just the bullshit detector that's in the Y. It's also uh, I had a long chat with Karibu at the Ayuga meeting in 2005 in Copenhagen, which she was heavily involved with being Norwegian. So. Um, and I sat next to her at, at a dinner and uh, I had a lot of interaction with her, but she didn't believe me. She did not believe me. And then some, I was invited to, to Oslo several times and I've, I've helped several of the people that have worked with her. Um, you know, people like, uh, like, uh, uh, Memona Majida, who is a, who is a, an, a, an ONG or Siv Morkved, who is a physio, of course. And there's a few others like Ingrid Wollehaug up in, in Trondheim. She is now, I think, and a few others. And, um, and they've, Siv at some stage, uh, you know, in 2010 or so, or 12, I asked Siv, has, uh, has, um, Kari gotten around to it now and and Siv said oh I don't know she's still uh, so it's crazy isn't it that yeah. that someone who has the cap capacity capability of checking uh, every day of her life she can check and ascertain whether this whether the idea of evolution is bullshit or not she's um, you know people are when somebody builds a career and it may happen to you as well you you you're, you identify with a number of theories, tenets, uh, fundamental principles. And sooner or later, somebody's going to come around and explode some of your fundamental principles. Um, that's not comfortable. And no. it's going to happen to me too. It, we, you know, if somebody comes around with something completely new that suddenly makes our method obsolete, um, I, I don't, I may not react entirely rationally. Uh, and, and this is, this is again, this is very much a, a um, this is the way the human brain works. So this is why there is this fundamental conservatism of, of opinion leaders. So opinion leaders will always tend to slow down progress yeah. because they stand for something. And progress means that that something isn't worth as much as it was yesterday. Um, that's something that's very strong in medicine. So uh, and one of the main reasons for the observation that in the sciences, it takes about a generation for a new concept to be generally accepted. And there's a there's an aphorism, there's a saying by Max Planck, who was a Nobel Prize winner for physics uh, in the 50s, I think. He was involved with the um, elaboration of nuclear fission in the 30s and 40s. Uh, and and he was not a Nazi, which is why he got a, a Nobel Prize in the 50s as a German. <laughs> And um, uh, even so, you know, of course, that was a you know pretty political thing in the 30s. Yeah. And um, and Max Planck said um, that new discoveries are not accepted because we convince our seniors they're accepted once our seniors die. So so there so he said there's a biological thing about yeah. this. So, you know, certain people have to get out of the way first. It's brutal. Um, but, um, you know, that's just biology. So, so I don't begrudge anybody, um, their skepticism. 
I would just ask them to, you know, give the new concept a chance, just see it for themselves. And in the end, it's a matter of, um, you know, being up to date with the literature, uh, which is an, an effort. But yeah. there's so much now. There's now hundreds of papers on this. So and there's there's one paper in the published literature that marginally criticizes the concept, also from Vicolar. Um, and that's it in the entire world literature. So, um, yeah, just check for yourself, I guess. Yeah. So <laughs> it's essentially a muscle tear in the pelvic floor muscles. Yeah. yeah. Um, and how does this happen? It's a traumatic event. Yeah. Well, it, an important point to make is, and I've got a palpation model here. You've seen this. Yep. Okay. All right. So that's a, that's the commonest um, form of trauma, a full right side of the wasn't. This here is the levator plate. And the further up you go, the thinner it gets, because up here, that's iliococcygeus. This is much thicker. It's puborectalis. It inserts on the inferior pubic ramus here and a bit higher up over the obturator for ramen and even higher up all the way to, to the iliac crest, uh, to, to, to the, to the um, ischial spines. And in the middle here is the urethra. In the front would be the simpsis pubis. So on the outside, it looks like that. With the clitoris is where the fingertips meet, and the back passage, the anus, is where the hands meet, down here, okay? So that's the skin, as it were, and about two centimeters up, there's this. There's that structure, yeah. which is part of the abdominal envelope. So it's basically what keeps your insides in. So there's the diaphragm, there's the ribs to a degree, the backbone, there is the abdominal wall, um, there's the pubis or there's, there's the, 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 the pelvis with its three bones and at the bottom like a second diaphragm is the levator ani muscle and it's not a bowl as it is usually illustrated it's it's kind of like a funnel so it goes up quite steeply in somebody who is awake and and alive okay and um, that's what the baby has to pass through this is the structure that determines vaginal intravaginal pressures that's that sphincter and when you do a contraction it goes like so not just that it also moves upwards but that's kind of the, the two main the two main components of activity there are a, a narrowing in that direction and also an upwards a pulling upwards that's why it's called levator ani it's the lifter lifting, of the back yep. passage and you can observe that very easily in somebody who's doing a, a decent contraction now the baby's got to pass through there of course it also has to pass through the bony pelvis which has been our focus for 200 years but but the bony pelvis is not that commonly that much of a problem these days it's much more of a problem in in a malnourished population or in a population where where young uh, girls have babies before they're you know before they're really supposed to before the 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 skeletal maturation is complete um, that's really bad but in our world, that's really quite uncommon, um, unless, you know, a diabetic grows a huge big baby. OK, um, so in our world, the soft tissues of the birth canal are relatively more important in terms of what damage is done. OK, in terms of things going wrong. And another aspect that needs to be mentioned, oh, I should say the fact that soft tissues are so Im more important in our labor wards. Um, is partly due to the fact that women are have been getting older and older and older when they have their first baby. So now the mean age at first birth at a place like the North Shore or at the Royal or the RPA is maybe 33, 34 years. 
um, in here it's maybe 31, 32. Uh, in private, it's higher than that. Yeah. So be, because of um, because of the uh, you know of uh, of women's liberation of empowerment, um, increasingly young women put off having babies because they realize that to have a career. Um, you probably need to do that. And in many instances, people feel the need to put off childbearing. And then there's the other problem of finding Mr. Right, which I think is probably more difficult now than it's uh, been in a long time. So so the, that, that means that increasingly women, if they have children at all, they have them later in life. And the older we get, and some of your uh, listeners may be old enough to appreciate that, I certainly am, uh, the older you get, the stiffer you get, okay? The harder it is to kind of, you know, scratch your back in a certain place or to to reach your toes when you stand and bend down. So that is due to, it's well known, that is due to a an alteration in the mix of certain molecules in your connective tissue. So very, very, very crudely speaking, there's a reduction in what's called elastin and an increase in certain types of collagen, which means all your tissues get stiffer. This is why your kids can do things that you cannot. And and this is incidentally also why your kids can get away with um, sit, with um, injuries or mm. incidents that would break your bones. But 35 and 40 is not old. <laughs> well, you know, we are, we are, of course it's not. I'm 55 <laughs> and uh, I, I reckon I'm pretty young. <laughs> but the, the, the problem Tissues. is... <laughs> but the problem is that we are, um, you know, our biology yeah. um, implies that we're kind of designed to have our first baby by age 20. And, and 20? Had... Did you say 20? Yeah. Okay, you did say 20. Yep. Yeah. I mean, hey, listen, 25 is pretty good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the, the point is we had um, one of my PhD students who's just graduated, Friyan uh, Turel. She, she's uh, Indian originally, so she, she had this um, uh, connection um, and she was really interested in in finding out why so many women in Nepal have prolapse. This is a thing that's been known in Australia and New Zealand for a while because of the obvious connection following on you know from colonial times and then uh, you know the uh, so Edmund Hillary and all that. There's a big New Zealand connection and uh, to Nepal still and and you know by inference Australia as well. And um, so there's a whole lot of um, uh, uh, Western obstetricians, gynecologists that go to Nepal to do prolapse surgery camps because there's so much prolapse there, and uh, and they're not coping. Of course, they're you know this is a developing country, a poor developing country. So she went there to work out why it is that so many young Nepalese women have prolapse, and we expected a lot of pelvic floor damage, um, but they don't. They have um, both for the liver and muscle and for the anal sphincter, which is the other main structure that gets damaged in childbirth, they had the lowest trauma rates ever documented in the world literature. So because of so, their connective tissue or? So it's crazy. They, she scanned 120 women or so who'd had a baby vaginally or 118 or so. And she found two full avulsions and two sphincter tears. Yeah. At the RPA in Sydney, it's 10 times as many. It's not 2%, it's 20%. That's crazy. That's absolutely nuts. And um, it's only just published. And, um, and in Nepal, so, so, you know, we thought they, do, they have a lot of prolapse because they do pelvic floor damage. And the answer was emphatically, no, they don't have um, more pelvic floor damage. They have a lot less. Their pelvic floors on average are much better than those of Sydney ciders, which is amazing. Yeah. 
but they have a, they have the world's highest rate of uterine retroversion. So a lot of retroverted uterine, which is an obvious risk factor for prolapse, which we've largely forgotten about over the last 50 years. So so that's probably what does it. But um, and and that's that's why Friant's PhD is. Um, I mean, it went through like lubricated. Everybody was so impressed. It was very, very good. We had um, Delena on the podcast um, a few episodes ago talking about some oh. of their research that they did there yeah, as good. well. Yeah. Good, good. Well, yeah, Delena did, did um, Delena was more fo- was focused on different things, of yes, course. Yes, yeah. Um, anyway, so so in Nepal, the average age at first birth is somewhere between 20 and 21. Yeah, okay. At, at the RPA, it's 20, 32, 33, yeah. okay? So, so we we're we are biologically designed to have our babies earlier, and and in fact, it's kind of amazing that modern obstetrics, with this massive increase in potential problems, because everything bad in the book goes up with age. So, you know, of course, um, miscarriages, um, you know, chromosomal abnormalities, uh, IUGR, what you name it, okay, diabetes. Uh, overly big, but everything goes up. All, all potential complications go up with age at first birth. And it's amazing that in our societies with modern obstetrics, we've actually managed to consistently and for, you know, for like 50 years, slowly decrease, decrease, decrease uh, both um, perinatal morbidity and mortality, which is what affects babies, and also maternal morbidity and mortality, which is what affects mums. The one part of um, maternal morbidity, the one thing that we haven't been able to decrease is pelvic floor damage. Uh, and a long time, a long time, we didn't even know because there was no means of diagnosing it. So now we can. So what happens there is the baby's head comes down and we call that crowning. Once the baby is that far down that you can actually see when you part the labia, you can see the hair. Okay. Once it's reached that stage, um, the, the upper reaches of the pelvic floor have been stretching. The lower reaches are unstretched. They start to stretch then, and then over the period of what we call crowning, when the baby's head comes through finally, over 10 minutes or so, during that time, that muscle, the puborectalis muscle, gets stretched enormously. And and that was first shown by uh, our main competitor in Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, John Delancey's group, who in 03 did some computer modeling to show that that part of the pelvic floor, the puborectalis muscle, is the bit that has to stretch the furthest and the fastest. So from a purely theoretical point of view, it's the most likely to get damaged. And then the question is where? And of course, normally, you know, say a quadriceps tear, normally you'd expect a lot of muscle you'd expect to rupture in the belly. Hmm. And then you get a scar and it heals and it's okay. Uh, other structures get torn off at their insertion. So, for example, the rotator cuff, or also the well, actually the Achilles tendon. Mm. I think ruptures in the middle. That's it does, something. Yeah. So, so in in this particular instance, um, we've done some biomechanical work on this. Um, and Jenny Kruger is at the Auckland Bioengineering Institute. You you know that we've been interested in this, and Jenny is still doing very good work there. Um, in the end such a tear is evidence of what the biomechanicists call a catastrophic failure of a structure. Okay, it fails like a bridge. Hmm. And it, you'd expect it to fail at its weakest point. And the situation down there is really unique in the human body. And I've spoken to a lot of people 
uh, about this anatomists, orthopedic surgeons, trauma, sports medicine, whatever. And um, it, it seems that the insertion of the muscle here is a very recent development in evolution in that everything's totally different in primates. We have a collaboration with as with a former PhD student of mine at the University of Pretoria in South Africa. And she's just done a study on some 20 uh, chimpanzees. And um, and we've tried to do the same here at Taronga Zoo, actually. But it's kind of, you know, in Australia, certain types of research have become basically impossible due to red tape, due to overregulation. And this is why we've outsourced this research to Pretoria and we've outsourced other research to all kinds of places, Houston, Baltimore, Las Palmas de, um, of the, uh, on the Canary Islands, um, uh, all, uh, Santiago de Chile. So there's a lot of stuff we can't do here anymore. But at least we can provide ideas for others. That's good. Yeah. So so what, Z, what Zila Abdul in, in Pretoria found was that there's nothing like it in in, in uh, primates you can't find those structures okay so you can't you can't the, find the, the, you can't find the levator ani well we find something that looks like an equivalent um but uh, everything's different so she needs to do some you know she needs to at some stage bite the bullet and um, actually look at a dead chimpanzee uh, and, and, and do dissections and find out what's really going on there because on the scan it looks so very different, very different. So the point is that this is fast evolution. It's bound up with our upright posture um, because the, the pelvis of primates is very, very different and the pelvic floor of primates is very different because of the, um, you know, the all fours uh, locomotion, mm -hmm. the all fours uh, position. Um, so it's got to be very different in humans. And, and then on top of that is the, the, the problem that with, with primates, the, the, the head of the baby is a really easy fit. It's just, I mean, there's good two centimeters to spare. I mean, it's like they just fall out. Really, they do. I mean, the, the chief, um, um, the chief um, uh, veterinarian at, at Taronga Zoo said, um, you know, she's got the, that, that um, chimp has a big belly and, you know, she's going to have her baby soon. And then she disappears behind a bush and 10 minutes later she's back with a little one in her arms, okay? That's how easy they have it. So humans are so very different, as um, many of your uh, listeners will know from own experience. And and then, then that baby has to get through there, through a structure that is supposed to hold your insides in. This is just a really, really bad functional compromise, um, which again is the evidence of fast evolution, because evolution has the habit of uh, sorting out um, the glitches, you know, the, the bugs, um, we're very much, when it comes to our pelvic floor, we are a better version. We are, because of fast development, we are not um, fully mature in, in uh, the way we're designed. And um, so there's this structure which is attached to directly to bone. That in itself is a problem. Um, there, there are not many places in the human body where muscle directly inserts on bone. And you may know more about that than I do. And the um, it's called... Uh, th that word is not always used in the same way, but uh, the, the anatomists call it an enthesis, E-N-T-H-E-S-I-S. -E so where, where muscle fibers um, spread out, the technical word is decussate, so they spread out into the periost, the, the, you know, the skin over the bone, and some of those fibers end up in within trabecular bone. 
So rather than a tendon attachment. Yeah, there's no tendon, there's no aponeurosis, there's no fascia, it's directly attached. And and there's a paper from Delancey where he shows that in women with avulsion there are there are actually micro fractures. The there are micro fractures, there are micro fractures in the bone, and tiny bits of bone may even be pulled out. I've never seen or felt anything that felt like bone. It's just too, you know, it is microscopic. Yeah. It makes the point that this is an unusual connection. It's a it's a you know, it's like a temporary solution it's like a <laughs> it's like um, something that needs revision <laughs> and uh, it's not intelligent design okay <laughs> uh, and um, and and so imagine there's this opening which in the in the average young woman who hasn't fallen pregnant is about 15 one five centimeter square even when she bears down so you know she goes and it opens up to 15 centimeters square and the baby, on average, a normal Caucasian baby at term needs 68 centimeters square. A huge, enormous stretch. And normally, normal skeletal muscles should go pop. Will always go pop with that kind of stretch. It's um, kind of hopeless. But then we know that th- that the majority, the great majority of women actually get away with it. And in Nepal, just about everybody gets away with it. So that muscle is special. Uh, in the sense that it obviously undergoes, it, it may be special from the start, from, from when you're born, but it probably also undergoes um, ultrastructural change in pregnancy with the first pregnancy. I mean, we already know that that even in early pregnancy, women are quite uh, quite a bit more elastic down mm-hmm. there than, than non-pregnant women. And, and many of your listeners will know that from own experience, okay? Um, and one... one Symptoms that people pick up from that uh, almost universally, for example, is reflux. Well, partly that's also the you know the belly growing, but but also the fact that the sphincter um, you know in the diaphragm isn't quite so tight anymore because there's a a, a relax, relaxing effect on muscle of pregnancy hormones, and um, and it's also the case for your veins. So it's not just that you have more blood volume when you're pregnant, but also because your veins behave differently. They're made of muscle. And, and everything is a little stretchier and wider and more accommodating, which is why people sometimes grow varicose veins in pregnancy. Um, there's a whole lot of other manifestations of this, um, this effect of pregnancy on your whole body. And, and when it comes to the pelvic floor, it's very, very important because uh, that softening effect on the pelvic floor of pregnancy hormones means that the great majority um, are in fact able to push a baby through without doing any damage. In fact, about about half of all women would have a pelvic floor after a vaginal delivery that looks normal, that looks just like before and that behaves just like before. So it's really the unlucky ones in whom the muscle either gets badly overstretched and we don't really know what happens there. And it's you can imagine it's very difficult to impossible to investigate. We don't know whether this is a resetting of something central, of a central resting tone, because what your muscle does is uh, it's not just innate muscle properties. Of course, it's what happens up here. This is why muscle in somebody who is under an anesthetic and muscle relaxed behaves differently from when that person's awake. Yeah. Or say, you, you've you got kids? Yep, two. 
so 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 remember how it was initially when you when you put your baby to your shoulder it is like um like putty it's um it completely conforms to the shape of your shoulder hmm. because there is no virtually no muscle tone everything's kind of flabby and then they start lifting their head and they start lifting their body and they start sitting up and they start standing and walking and all this is anti-gravity um it's all um resetting of um activation status central activation status so those neurons up there do stuff differently in order to allow that child to hmm, to combat gravity that's largely it okay um and and that means ever increasing resting tone this is why you know how old is your oldest 10 okay what happens if you hug that 10 year old if i hug him and pick him up no no i mean um, can you still, is it a male or a female? It's a male. <laughs> a 10-year-old boy. So yeah. you can probably still hug him fine and he's not hes not stiffening up like they do once they become teenagers. Oh, yeah, no, he still likes hugs. <laughs> uh, so, see, but, you know, that kind of thing. So yeah. so in, in four years' time, um, you know, uh, our youngest is 14 and a half. Yeah. And, and my wife finds it a little hard to let go. And um, so... Uh, you know, she still inappropriately calls him Mosey or Mosey Bear, which is uh, German for, yeah, you can imagine, uh, you know, little mouse. Okay. And, um, <laughs> and of course, in a 14 and a half year old boy, that's starting to sound wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, that kind of, there's, there's, it happens mentally too. Okay. <laughs> so, so the, that, that increase in resting tone, in independence, in, mm. in autonomy. Uh, and, and that's something that happens up here. It's not the muscle. It happens up here. Um, and and so the so the the older we get, uh, uh, you know, in in a in a baby, there's virtually no in or very little in it muscle tone. And the older you get, the the more it goes up. And then um, you know, beyond the age of what twenty or twenty five, there are actually structural changes that kick in that make these structures even stiffer. Um, and that means that for a substantial minority of women in our society. Childbirth is, in fact, a, vaginal childbirth is a danger to their uh, bodily integrity. Mm. And there's an awful lot of work to do to um, make people focus on that. Um, we need, you know, you're part of the ambulance, mostly the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. Okay, so you're you're part of the profession that primarily has to deal with the casualties yep. like like me like like a urogynecologist we deal with those who've suffered trauma and we advise we diagnose so we, we determine what's happened and then we advise um the that person what how best to cope with the new situation but of course there's there's a lot more to do uh, and the very first thing we need to do and you're probably aware that the Australia Australian Birth Trauma Association is uh, very active in this we got to stop the bad stuff from happening so how do we do that you're doing this yeah that's why what you that's why we're sitting here because the more the first thing that has to happen is an awareness that there's a problem okay you're yeah. never going to fix a problem if a lot of people think it's not there or if a lot of people don't even know that somebody thinks it exists. And um, now we're surrounded by people who tell us that there's all kinds of problems out there and that that we ought to desperately try and fix them. I appreciate that. There's so much, you know, there's so much call on 
you know people's attention and um, and compassion and energy and money and whatnot uh, these days you can pick any of a hundred causes and um, you'll find people who think that that's the most important thing in the world I don't think that um, pelvic floor trauma is the most important thing in the world actually but but it is important for young women um, it's important for any woman who is uh, considering childbirth. And of course, it's important to every obstetrician, gynecologist, and to every midwife, and to every pelvic floor physio. So the first thing is we've got to make people understand what the problem is, that there is a problem, and that we should do something about it. Now, the difference between those Nepali women and those the Sydney siders should make it bloody obvious that there's a problem, there's more of a problem there now than there was 30 or 60 years ago. That's partly because of the increasing age at first birth, um, which we've already talked about. Partly it is that over the, it's due to the fact, and that's increasingly affecting Queensland as well, also mm -hmm. you're better off in many ways than New South Wales and much better off than Victoria. But uh, there's increasingly there's been a, there's public act, there's been public activism in order to reduce the number of cesarean sections that we do. And that comes from the observations that cesarean sections have gone up inexorably, okay? I mean, we seem to have reached a plateau now, but from the 60s onwards, there's a, a, a near linear increase in C-section rates. To the extent that C the cesarean section is the commonest surgical procedure in most countries and um, in our hospitals. and. Um, there's a reason for that. Uh, and one of the reasons I've just pointed out that that it's demographics. OK, women are getting older and older. And incidentally, they're also getting bigger and bigger when they have their first baby, which is seriously bad news and which both is um, both obesity and age at first birth are the two main drivers of the cesarean section rate. So the so 90 well, a, a colleague of mine has just done some research showing that 98 or 97% of the variation in C-section rates can be explained just by demographics. It's not the doctors doing making crazy decisions, it's just the patients that we, we're confronted with and that, that our midwives are confronted with. This is different from you know, when I started as a student, things were quite different. So we've had a massive shift in, um, in, in what you could call the the demographics of of uh, those women who are giving birth now yeah. that's the first thing and 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 and, and because of that rising c-section rate we've been we, obstetricians have come worldwide have come under a lot of pressure uh, regarding the c-section rate and many of your uh, listeners will be aware of that um, and um, that has led to obstetricians coming under a lot of pressure um, which they've responded to, many have responded to that by trying to get babies out that normally we would have delivered by cesarean. And the only way to get them out, to get a baby out that's really reluctant to come, is uh, by using vacuum or forceps. And vacuum is relatively harmless in that regard, but with vacuum you can't pull very hard. It's just not technically possible. With forceps you can pull two and a half to three times harder. That means you get babies out that would not normally come out because the mechanical resistance is too high. Um, so with a forceps, you can pull harder. It's one of the very few things we can do to reduce the C-section rate. And there are, um, there, there are, there's at least one hospital in Sydney at the, the, the Royal Hospital for Women in Randwick, where they've actually managed to get the C-section rate down from like, from 31 to 28 or so, which is, uh, which doesn't sound like much, but it's actually massive. And they've done that by pulling out all the stops. So they, 
they push vaginal delivery as much as they can. They push vaginal birth after cesarean, which in my view is just, I'm sorry, it's just a bad misunderstanding. It's just not a good idea if somebody wants two or three babies and the first one was a cesarean. It's not a good idea to try normally because the likelihood of a lot of complications mm. are substantially is substantially increased. But just as an aside, this is one way we try to reduce the C-section rate by pushing vaginal birth after cesarean, by pushing um, what's called external cephalic version. So if somebody's got a breech baby, we try to turn it, which is not exactly harmless either. There's also risks involved for the mom and for the baby. And uh, most importantly, people have uh, done more and more forceps. So in the in the UK, which, which is where all this started, we are, we're just, you know, we're we just follow along like the good old colonials we are <laughs> follow along and from 2005 to 16 the 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 forceps rate in the uk is more than doubled from 3.8 to over 7 or 3.5 to over 7 or 3.4 to over 7 percent and still going up and there's places like the, the further north you go the worse it is so in places like glasgow they do more forceps than ever before um and and the same has been happening in new south wales and in victoria where there's historically high forceps rates now at a number of um, Victorian and a number of Melbourne and Sydney tertiary units. So at the RPA, the forceps rate has quadrupled since I was there in 0204. At the Royal Hospital for Women, it's increased by, you know, it's it's increased by a factor of 2.5 from mm. 4 to 10 percent uh, since I left there. So so there's there's an, an awful lot more forceps done. And that at a time when we know that forceps is the main modifiable risk factor. If we could stop forceps altogether, it'd make a huge difference. And we can see that in Denmark or Sweden, uh, because in Denmark, they haven't done forceps like in um, something like 15 or 16 years now. And in at Sweden, all? Yeah, and not at all. And in Sweden, the their college of ONG uh, last year passed a resolution that advised strongly against using forceps. And in Denmark, um, that whole thing started happening in the late 60s, early 70s, because the vacuum was invented in Sweden. So the Nordic countries were the very first to pick up vacuum, then Central Europe and then the UK uh, in the 70s and 80s. And um, and in Denmark, the, there's really good uh, uh, countrywide data on prolapse surgery. And the lifetime risk of, having, of needing prolapse surgery in Denmark has fallen by about 30% over the last 30 years, which goes very well with the phasing out of forceps between 1970 and 2000. Because it takes, the, you know, the average time span between a first baby and somebody coming to us for prolapse surgery is about it's between 30 and 35 years, okay. um, which which fits in perfectly with what happened in Denmark. And before you ask, Denmark has got better statistics, better perinatal statistics than we do. Um, so, of course, when, you know, some many of my colleagues would say, but we need forceps. Well, really, I mean, they don't need them in Sweden or in Denmark. So why should we? Uh, where's please? I mean. Yeah, it's not logical, okay? Um, but it is, I understand that it's really, really hard for professionals to go, to let go of something that they like, that they know they can do, that they know they can do successfully, they know this works, forceps works. I, I liked it too, because, because if you need to help a baby out, then once you've put the forceps on the first pull, you know it's gonna come, you're, you're safe. 
So the first pull, you you breathe a sigh of relief. It's basically all over. It's just another few minutes of, you know, helping it out. Is there um, not ever an instance where, I'm not an obstetrician, so I don't know, but is there never an instance where, um, you know, you avoid, avoid forceps as much as you can as an obstetrician and then the baby is at risk and it's your only option and you need to get it out quickly. Okay, that's it for today, everyone. Tune back in for the next episode and we will continue on from that discussion. 